Then I'd just like to begin by welcoming those of you guys watching online right now from coast to coast and across the Fruited Plains. My name is Joe. I'm the pastor of Lynchburg City Church. And if God puts it on your heart to give to the church, you can do so by going to lynchburgcitychurch.com. Just pray with me right now, guys. Uh, Jesus, we love you because you first loved us. And um, Lord, we think of uh, right now our leaders. We think of President Biden. And we pray that you'd give him wisdom. We pray that you'd help him to make good and just decisions. We pray for a special grace in his life, that you'd protect him, his, his mental faculties, um, that you'd guide and instruct him. Lord, for our soldiers, sailors, airmen, Marines, Coast Guard, and Space Force, those serving at home and abroad, we pray for their safety. We pray for their protection. And Lord, we also pray that you'd save those guys because so many of those guys, they don't know you. They're so lost. And Lord, we think of the persecuted church. We think of Leah Sherabu being held by Boko Haram in Nigeria because she's a Christian, or Pastor Yusuf imprisoned in Iran, or Pastor Wang, or Pastor John imprisoned in China for the Christians, Lord, in North Korea, in Afghanistan, in Eritrea, in the South Sudan. Please, God, help them. Help the Christians, Lord, in Somalia. Help the Christians, Lord, in Ukraine and Russia, Lord. Oh, we pray for the peace of Ukraine and Russia. For Vladimir Putin, we pray that he would confuse and frustrate his plans and that you would save him and that the church there would be a shining city on a hill, a beacon of hope to so many people who don't have hope right now that need hope. Lord, for all our brothers and sisters throughout the world who are suffering, like literally suffering in camps and prisons, Lord, we remember those who are in chains as if in chains with them. Jesus, please help them. And please help us today, Lord. I pray you would free us from whatever distractions we have going on right now in our lives. We want to hear from you. We, we need to hear from you, Lord. We need to hear from you, so please help us and help me. Keep me from error. Help me not to say anything that I shouldn't say. And if there's something I need to say that I haven't even planned on saying, I, I pray for a fresh filling of the Spirit in my life. We love you, Jesus. And we pray this in your name. Amen. Amen. <clears throat> so um, at Lynchburg City Church, we love doing this thing called expository preaching. That's where you go verse by verse, chapter by chapter through the text. We do that for a, a couple of reasons. Uh, one, um, it helps prevent taking verses out of context. If you've ever been to a church and the pastor reads a bunch of random verses and then just kind of talks about something that has nothing to do with the verses, it, it helps prevent taking verses out of context. And number two, it, it helps to maintain the author's intended meaning of the text. And, and we think that's also really important. And so um, for that reason, this is part 18 of our journey through John's Gospel. This is the 18th sermon that I have preached in John's Gospel. And we're picking up in chapter 6, verse 30 today. And I'll give you, I'll, I'll try to connect the dots. Um, chapter 6 kicked off with Jesus feeding the 5,000. And there's this ongoing dialogue that is occurring. It's, it's a very long chapter. And so uh, we're going to chip away at it a little bit more. But we'll get right into it today. Uh, chapter 6, verse 30, it says, So they said to him, Jesus, that's who they're talking to, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? 
And, and if you remember, we left off last week, Jesus just told them in verse 29 that the works that they're supposed to be doing really come down to one thing, belief. Verse 29, it's about belief, belief in, in Jesus. And while that sounds uh, certainly straightforward and simple, it's not as simple for a first century works-oriented Palestinian Jew who had always sought and, and understood that your acceptability with God is through doing works. And now they're hearing something totally different. They've never heard this before. It's, it's shocking to them. They're, they're hearing this grace-based, faith-filled emphasis, not on the works of man, but on the works of God. And so they're very skeptical right now. And they think they need proof to substantiate that claim that Jesus has just made in verse 29. And so they demand that he do a sign. And you might say, whoa, wait a second. Didn't he just do the miracle at the beginning of chapter 6, right? He fed the 5,000. You would be correct. And the very next day, they're asking for a sign? Yeah, you would be correct about that too. You see, from their point of view, well, that was yesterday. And today is today. So we want a new sign. And they explain why they feel that they should be entitled, entitled to this in verse 31. After all, our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. In verse 31, they make this reference to the story of Moses and, and God feeding the people with manna as justification for their request. Because, well, when their forefathers were in the wilderness, God gave them manna every day. They didn't just get manna on one day, on one occasion. They got it for every day. In other words, Jesus... If you want us to believe what you're saying, if you want us to actually listen to you, you need to pull your weight for us. You need to keep impressing us. You need to keep doing stuff for us. Like, I get that you did this impressive miracle yesterday, the feeding of the 5,000, but today is not yesterday. And if it comes off at all like they're a bunch of, I don't know, spoiled brats, driving around in the cars that mommy and daddy bought for them with their nose in the air, as if they're better than anyone and everyone else making demands they really have no right to make, then yeah, that's kind of how I, I, I've seen it as well. Just, just huge, spoiled, brat attitudes right now here. So Jesus says to them in verse 32, Truly, I truly, I say to you, it was not. It was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. It's, it's me. I'm the true bread. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to this world. In this verse, Jesus tells them, uh, it, it wasn't Moses doing this, it was God. Moses didn't provide the bread, God did. Jesus effectively tells them, listen, uh, this Bible story, you got it a little bit confused right now, and you're taking some verses out of context. And quite frankly, I think it's a good reminder for us all. You see, everyone at one point or another, they've probably sat around at a Bible study where the leader starts off by asking the question, I'd like everyone to go around the group and share, what does that verse mean to you? But the reality is it doesn't really matter what it means to you because you didn't write it and it wasn't written to you. 
When what we should be asking is, well, what did it mean to Paul or what did it mean to John when they wrote it? I mean, you just turn on the TV, for instance, and it seems like just about every other like post-game interview, you hear someone say something to the effect of, man, no interception thrown against us is going to prosper. No onside kicked against us will prevail. Man, we can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. It's always interesting to me, I'll be honest, uh, how Philippians 4.13 just gets tossed around. A very popular verse, a very good verse. But you know what isn't as popular as Philippians 4.13? Philippians 4.12, the one that comes right before it, that explains what Paul means by the all things in verse 13. This is what he says in verse 12. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound in any and every circumstance. I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. So, so Jesus has to correct them right now. Because for them, and it's all about Moses. They love Moses. They think Moses is the greatest. They're like, Jesus, Moses fed us every day. You only fed us yesterday. Jesus, you need to be more like Moses. And maybe we might continue believing you. See, sometimes we give glory to people when we actually should be giving glory to God. And so, so Jesus, what he does here is he comes and he corrects them and their misuse of scripture in verse 32. He says, God did that miracle, not Moses. And God is now giving you something greater than what your fathers received. They received bread in the wilderness and God is giving you the bread of eternal life right now. And you don't see it. And so verse 34, they said to him, sir, give us this bread. Always. Always. Sign us up. Sign us up. We want this bread. You see, the people are still misunderstanding, which is why they say, give us this bread always. They want Jesus to be like Moses. If their ancestors got food every day for years and years, they want to get food every day for years and years. So Jesus, you need to conform to how we want you to act and what we want you to do. And then we come to verse 35. This is a good one. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. And the way that you get the bread that Jesus is offering, that the people said, give us this type of bread always, is not by visiting a baker, but by coming to Jesus. You see, coming to Jesus is parallel with believing in him, just as obeying him stands parallel to believing in him. This is what it means to be saved. You see, it's not the, the sinner's prayer. It's not asking Jesus to come into your heart. It's having a hunger and thirst for God, as verse 35 says, or, or as Piper loves to say, it is being satisfied with all that God is for you in Jesus. And, and therein lies the battle of our faith, which is doing whatever we have to do to see Jesus for who he really is, to see him better than the next meal, to see him better than the next house or the next paycheck or the next relationship. And the reason is because for many people today who claim to know Christ, yet when they look at Jesus, they're like, he's boring. He's boring. I've heard it all before. There's nothing you could tell me today that is really going to like excite me at all. You see, verse 35 is about the heart of man. 
And for some of you right now, your heart is not right. You have zero desire for God. You have zero desire to pursue the things of God. You have zero desire for the people of God. Which that point, please let me clarify. Like, church online is not the people of God. Church online is not the church. Online sermons may be beneficial, but they are not a substitute for the real thing. In fact, right here in verse 35 is what it really means to be saved. Therefore, when I'm talking to people and they come and they're like, Joe, I don't know if I'm really a Christian. I don't ask them if they've ever prayed the sinner's prayer. I don't ask them if they've ever asked Jesus to come into their heart, but rather I just take them straight to Jesus. Have you met Jesus? I take them right to verse 35. I ask them, what is your deepest desire? Because if it's not Jesus, then you need to repent right now and seek forgiveness. And the reason I do that is because some people will tell me how they got saved or they prayed the prayer at some point in their life, but they have zero affections for God. They have zero appetite for the things of God. And it becomes very self-evident that they do not hunger and they do not thirst for the living God at all. Therefore, verse 35 is what it means to actually be saved. And so he says in verse 36, But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. You've seen me, you don't believe. Have you ever heard people say, if God showed up, I would believe. If he, if he could just show up, right, I would then believe. I mean, maybe you have an unsaved friend, an atheist friend, an agnostic friend, and I always am like, no, you wouldn't. Case in point, these people. You see, because it's never enough. For these people, it's not a matter of, of seeing, it's a matter of stubbornness on the part of the people. Like, I've had conversations before in which people I'm talking to have told me when I asked them, if Christianity were true, would you believe? If it were true, would you believe? And they still say, nope. Right? Despite, like, at the beginning of the conversation, saying how much they believe in reason and logic. That's the irony, right? That's why I say it's rarely about evidence or, or even uh, saying, oh, I just need to gather more information. But rather, those things typically are used as excuses so I don't have to follow God because I don't want to acknowledge him as God, because you know what? I like being my own little God. And so he says, you saw me, but you didn't believe. You ate the bread I offered, but you didn't believe. You heard me preach, but you still didn't believe. Just like in our day, whether it's praying a prayer or asking Jesus to come into your heart, none of those things guarantee that you will actually believe in a saving way. None of those things guarantee that you are saved, which is why I never speak of them here at Lynchburg City Church in terms of assurance of our salvation or in terms of a process to being saved, just the Bible doesn't use those terms or phrases either. Verse 36 can be summed up with one word, and that is stubbornness. They don't want to. They've seen him do stuff. They don't want to listen to him. They don't want to follow him. All that the Father gives me will come to me. Verse 37. Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, 
not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. So in verse 36, it paints this picture of the people's stubbornness. And now here in verse 37, he answers the question, how can someone come to Jesus despite their stubbornness? And the way that verse 37 speaks of coming to Jesus is in terms of a gift. In terms of a gift given by the Father. All that the Father gives me, Jesus says, will come to me. In other words, the way you come to Jesus is when the Father gives as a gift to you the Son. If He gives you to Jesus, you come. If He doesn't, you don't come. At least that's my understanding of the text. And I find those who struggle with the assurance of their salvation, they typically do so as a result of a very man-centric view of salvation in which they view themselves as the ultimate, determining, decisive force behind their salvation. When the, the truth of this text seems to say quite the opposite, specifically that God does not wait for his people to come to Jesus. Like God is not sitting up in heaven, waiting around, being like, OMG, I really hope they come today. I really hope they get saved today. Michael Gabriel, what do you think? You think they're going to get saved today? What do you think? I'm so nervous. Like that, never, that conversation never happens at all, guys. Ever. God does not wait for his people to come to the Son. If he did, guess what? They never would come. As verse 37 says, he gives them to Jesus. He chooses them for his own and he gives them to his son. And this is so important. God does not say that because people come to him and believe in Jesus, that they're given. Because that's typically how we say it. We're like, all right, all right. So basically, if I'm reading this text correctly, everyone that the Father gives to the Son comes to the Son. Yep. In other words, he's not saying that Okay, if you come to the Son, then I'll give you to the Son. Because that's, that's how my brain works, right? You come, and so I'm going to give you. That's not what it says in verse 37. All the Father gives me will come to me. That's it. Those whom the Father gives to the Son come to the Son. And the reason this matters so much is because those people are never cast out. Those people are never lost. Those people will one day be raised from the dead. In other words, he secures their coming. He works for their coming. He guarantees their coming. When you came to Christ, God brought you. When you believed, it was God opening your eyes. When Jesus was finally understandable to you, you didn't make that happen. God did. And when he did, you came freely with all your resistance overcome. You are therefore secure in Christ. And I think this should be very encouraging news for those of you who really question constantly, am I a Christian? I don't know if I'm a Christian. I'm struggling like, with assurance of salvation. And the, the truth is this. If you could lose your salvation, you would. You'd screw it up terribly. You would. But Jonah 2.9 is very clear. Salvation belongs to the Lord. You, you can't lose something that doesn't even belong to you in the first place. 
See, our confidence that we will be raised from the dead, that you'll actually be raised from the dead, is not found in our own decisive will to follow Jesus. It's found in the rock-steady words of Jesus. And if he says he will, he will. See, he's not like you and me who go around and we make promises and then we go back on our word, who make promises and then we break them, who make commitments to things, and then the second we have something come up, we bail. If he says it, he means it. And so verse 40, he says this. For this is the will of my Father. That everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life and I will raise Him up in the last day. Is it really? Is it really everyone, as verse 40 says? What about that guy named Judas? Judas. Or was he just the exception? What if I'm the exception? Because if Jesus couldn't preserve or keep Judas, can we really trust him to keep us? To raise us, to not lose us, to preserve us? And I would say, no, I don't think Judas was the exception to the rule. And no, I don't think God's power somehow broke down that day. And that's because it's very clear when you get to verse 70 and 71 that Jesus chose him to be one of the twelve and he knew from the beginning that he was a devil. Not only that, but here's what I want you to know and, and what I want you to remember about God and about his will, about his trustworthiness, about how confident we should or shouldn't be that outside forces can possibly upset his plans. Here's what, this is what you need to know about God. Old, old, small group memory verse, but this is just like the prophet Isaiah says this, Isaiah 46, 9 to 11. For I am God and there is no other. Think about it. God is saying this right now, right? You want to know about God? You come here today, you're like, I, tell me something about God. It's right there. There is none like me, he says, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. I call a bird of prey from the east and it comes. The man of my counsel from a far country, I have spoken and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed and I will do it. See, verse 40 is what John the Evangelist is highlighting right now for his readers. And this is his point. His point is to help us, to help you, to help me. So that when you see this, you are not just humbled, but in turn, you would be the type of Christian that is loving and fearless and bold and brave. And that's only possible if you believe that Jesus will deliver on his verse 40 promise of eternal life and raising you from the dead. So if, if you're here today and you're like, I'm not sure if I'm a Christian, Joe. Like, I've said the sinner's prayer a hundred times. Which I think speaks to your level of confidence. In mine, as someone who's probably done it 200 times. How can I really know if, if I'm chosen by God? If I've actually been given to Jesus by God, the way verse 37 speaks. How can I know that he will never cast me out? I want to know that. How can I know that he won't lose me? I want to know that he won't lose me. How can I know that he's actually going to raise me from the dead? 
Verse 35 holds the answer. We already read verse 35. Oh, we're going to read it again. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Ergo, if you come to him like this, hungering and thirsting for him, you demonstrate that you have indeed been given to him. And if you've been given by the Father to the Son, you will be kept. And if you are kept, you will be raised on the last day, Christian. And so verse 41 says this, 41 and 42. So the Jews grumbled about him. Yeah, of course they did. We're no different. Because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he say, I have come down from heaven? See, a lot of people are like like this today. They grew up with Jesus. They went to church camp. They went to vacation Bible school. They went to Christian school. They got it all, right? And for a lot of people, what happens is I think you get so familiar with Jesus that you actually don't know who he really is. I think it's interesting God rescues the people out of Pharaoh's hand, out of Egypt, out of slavery. And what do they do? They start grumbling and complaining. God provides for them along the way. And what do they do? They grumble and they complain. He gives them manna from heaven and feeds them. What do they do? They grumble and they complain. And here, yet again, God actually gives them his only son, the bread of life. And they're still grumbling and complaining. Like... Poor attitude? Yeah, that doesn't even begin to get at the heart of these people. Like some of us. Some of us in here. God has been so good to you. He's given you a great church. He's given you a great family. He's given you food to eat. Not to mention, if you were born in this country and you have a social security number, like you've already won the lottery. You're wealthier than like 99% of the people on the planet. And despite how good he is, Some of us have a tendency to only focus on the negative and to convince ourselves that the promises of God aren't actually true. And then on top of that, we just complain and we just grumble. In other words, no, 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 no. He can't be from heaven because, well, he's from earth. We know his parents. No, no, no. I went to vacation Bible school. Nope, that didn't really happen. And Jesus answered them, do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. In other words, the reason for their grumbling and their resistance to what he is telling them is now explained here in verse 44. And I suppose it could be boiled down to one single word. Impossible. Impossible. And that's because coming to Jesus, apart from the Father drawing you, is impossible. So I want to be very careful here that we think through, specifically, verse 44. To make sure we don't misunderstand what Jesus is saying and what he's not saying. Like, for instance, Jesus is not saying that every single person gets drawn. No more than he's suggesting that because every single person gets drawn, it's up to every single person to make the decision to follow him. And the reason I point that out is to clarify that he's not saying that. Because I think the majority of people today read verse 44 like this, including a much younger version of uh, Joe Decreon, 
who rarely picked up the Bible and let it accumulate lots and lots of dust. So we have a tendency to, especially a difficult text like this, uh, as soon as we read it, we start inserting other meanings into it. So John 6.44, John no one can come to me. No one can come to me, Jesus says, right? Unless the Father who sent me draws him. The Father who sent me draws him. What do we do? And he draws everybody, and it's really up to you to come to him or not. So if you don't come to him, that's, that's on you, man. That's how I would read into that verse. But that's not what it says. See, one of the benefits of doing expository preaching is you, there's, there's no wiggle room out for the pastor. When you come to tough verses, you've got to deal with them. You, you don't just get to be like, ah, oh, let's skip over that, right? Or I'll just read it really fast and then hope you don't ask any questions about it, small group. That's why, we, that's why we do small group the way we do. I hold, hold myself accountable. But we have a tendency, especially in the West, to approach a difficult text like this. It's like as soon as we see it, we're like, ooh, I think John got a little confused here. I think what he actually was trying to say was something different than what he actually did say. I still remember there was a girl here at this church many, many, many years ago. And she would regularly suggest that the Apostle Paul was very prone in his writing style to take verses out of context. And I was like, are, are you joking? She wasn't. I was like, you're, you're serious? Yeah. How can you take him out of context? Like, he wrote the verses. But for her, that, that was her uh, explanation. That was her way to explain hard passages, to just say that Paul was taking verses out of context. And so the danger becomes for us when we come across hard passages to just cover it up, to read the verse quickly and move on, to insert a meaning into it that isn't actually in it, or, and this is my goal and my hope, to humble ourselves under the authority of this book and trust that the author of this book knows what he's talking about more than I might in the moment be able to comprehend it. And so the Father in verse 44, he draws. And everyone whom he draws comes. There is not a single person that the Father draws who does not come. In other words, it's not the individual decision of the person that is decisive, but the, the drawing that is decisive. And someone was going to point out, someone's going to point out, so I'll just answer it right now. Well, hold on, Joe. If it's up to the Father to do the drawing, and I don't come to the Son, then how does the Father hold me accountable? How does the Father hold me responsible? After all, he didn't do the drawing. I'm off the hook. No accountability there. No punishment there. That's what I would say if I showed up Tuesday night at small group. That's what I would ask. This drawing, Piper says, is not at all in conflict with our choosing to come and our freely coming because we want to come. But his drawing is decisive and without it, no one would come. So if you ask the question, why did I actually come to Jesus? Did I come because I, I wanted to come or because the Father drew me? My answer would be yes. And in case you're not following around, the logic of that, it's yes to both of those. You came because you wanted Jesus and you came because the Father was drawing you. 
100%. See, when we come to Jesus, we come voluntarily, we come freely. We we come because we really want to come. And, And behind that change in us, in our stubbornness and in our hostility, which, oh, by the way, is the backdrop here, is the decisive work of the Father. If we come to Jesus, it is because the Father drew us, which none of us deserves. And if we don't come to Jesus, it is because the Father left us in our rebellion and sin, which all of us deserve. And this is not fatalism. Okay? The, the Bible teaches that each of us are responsible to come to Jesus. And for some of you, even right now, some of you, even right now, he's calling you. He's calling you to wave the white flag and surrender. He's calling you to end the rebellion against him. And so maybe instead of grumbling and complaining, my recommendation would be to start praying right now that God would change your heart and open your eyes and draw you to Jesus. And one of the reasons Jesus, oh, by the way, talks the way he does in verse 44 is to shake us out of our self-reliant, self-determining, self-exalting, self-absorbed, little brat ways that we've developed. And so let me clarify one more time between the tension of, of our responsibility and God's sovereignty and salvation. Acts 17.30, right there. God commands all people everywhere to repent. I can say as the preacher, you need to repent. And yet in 2 Timothy 2.25, it is God who actually grants repentance to whom he will. 1 Timothy 2.4, God desires all people to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. That's true 100%. And yet, as we just saw in John 6.44, the Father must draw you out of your spoiled brat grumbling ways in order to get to Jesus. And if he doesn't, you won't come. And so, it says in verse 45, it is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. More on that in just a moment. Verse 46, not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. That's, that's me, right? He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, verse 47, whoever believes has eternal life. This theme, believe, 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 keeps coming through. And then he says in verse 48, I am the bread of life. Your fathers, verse 49, they ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Your forefathers, they ate the bread from heaven. That was a great thing. It was a great miracle. There's a bigger, more powerful, more exciting, more wonderful miracle that's happening right now. They ate the bread, they die. You come to me, you eat from me, you never die. He's trying to show them something better. In their mind, there's nothing better. Man, Moses was the man, he's the greatest thing ever. And the miracle of the manna, man, that was just the best. And Jesus, if he wants to be up there with Moses, he needs to keep doing this. He's like, no, 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 no. there's something way better before you and you just don't see it. And so we go back to verse 45 because there's a lot to squeeze there. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. In verse 44, the Father 
does the necessary drawing of his people to the Son, and now in verse 45, answers the question, well, how? How does, how does God do the drawing of people to Christ? And the key word in verse 45 is taught. They will all be taught by God. In other words, the answer that John gives as to how the Father draws people to the Son is by teaching them. You see, one day we are sitting in darkness and the complacency of our sin and a little light comes on. I imagine like a little lighter. And it shows a little bit of the filth and the rebellion of our hearts. And then that little lighter turns into two lighters. It gets, it gets brighter and brighter. That's how it works. And we begin to see. And this is important. Really important. No one is taught and then decides not to come. And the end of verse 45 is pretty clear on this. No one in their sinful, rebellious, hostile, grumbling, complaining state is taught is shown the filth that they've been sitting in, that the dark room, the pitch black room that is their lives apart from Christ. And then they say, oh, so that's what that smell was. Oh, gross. No, I like it here anyways. That never happens. And verse 45 is very clear to the fact that when Jesus says, everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me, he's not talking like 60%, 75 percent everyone in other words when you're taught you are drawn and when you are drawn you come when you come you see clearly in the same way c.s lewis gets onto a bus as a non-christian and then by the time the bus stops and he gets off he's a christian he's a believer the drawing of the father is effectual and it produces a coming to jesus and is a saving way every time in other words there is no need for geds because there's no school dropouts. A hundred percent graduation rates into a saving relationship with Jesus. So how does that happen? God, God does that. A miracle has been taking place. There is no other explanation. You see what Jesus is doing here in verse 45? He's actually quoting the prophet Isaiah. In Isaiah 54, 13, he quotes him. All your children shall be taught by the Lord, and great shall be the peace of your children. See, the, the peace is great because we know this is true. That's, that's why you have peace. You have peace because you know it's true. And if it's true, we can be confident, not in ourselves for assurance, but in God. The prophet Jeremiah says it in a very similar way in Jeremiah 31, 33, 34. It says, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my law within them. And I will actually write it on their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor. And each his brother saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. These are the new covenant promises of God. This is what it means to actually be taught by God. And and here are two other New Testament examples of this in action, of the teaching of God that Jesus is referring to when he tells the people here in verse 45 that they're going to be taught from God. And the first comes in Matthew 16. In Matthew 16... Jesus asked Peter, who do you say that I am? And he says, 
You are the Christ. You are the son of the living God. And Jesus then tells him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven has. What he means is this, Peter, you didn't produce this answer on your own. Peter, you didn't figure out my identity by yourself. He doesn't discover who Jesus is because he crushed the competition in his sixth grade like Awana badges and classes. But to be clear, God the Father drew Peter. God the Father taught Peter and revealed to Peter this truth. And this is the same way the Apostle Paul speaks in 2 Corinthians 4, 6. I used to have this verse on my wall in my house. It says, For God who said, Let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. In other words, if what Jesus is saying is true, if he really is the bread of life, and if he really does give us to the Son, and if everyone who he gives actually comes, and if he really does keep us, and if he really does raise us from the dead, and if he really does draw us, and if everyone who draws actually comes to him, and if everyone who he teaches believes, then our faith will be strengthened knowing that as real saints, as real believers, as real Christians, we will persevere to the end, not because we raised our hand or walked the aisle or repeated a prayer after someone else, because when Jesus says something, he actually means it. He means it. That's where your assurance can be found. I used to hear pastors say, just write down the date that you walked the aisle in the front of your Bible, and if you ever doubt that, just look at that, right? The day you got saved. You want assurance? Go meet with Jesus. Go see what Jesus says. That's worth a whole lot more than some date you wrote in the front of your Bible. For those of you who maybe today or this week are struggling, am I actually a Christian? Go meet Jesus and see what he has to say. Go listen to what he has. Don't listen to what I'm saying. Go listen to him. He's the one that has and holds the words that lead to eternal life. As the team comes, I want to pray today. Lord, I thank you for the bedrock promises that we have in John chapter 6. Bedrock, truth, packed promises. And Jesus, I, I pray, Lord, for those of us in here who need encouragement right now and we're just battling battling with unbelief. Am I a Christian? Am I not a Christian? I fell into some big sin this week. Now, I don't know if I'm a Christian, Lord. I, Lord, for those people, Lord, I pray that you would just give so much encouragement to them. Just point them to the truth right now that we just looked at. Encourage our hearts, God. And for those of us in here who maybe, maybe we're, we never really were saved, maybe we're, we're, never, we're not actually real Christians, then I pray that you would, as 2 Timothy 2.25 says, grant them a heart of repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth, that you would grant it. All of this, the drawing, the calling, the teaching, all of it belongs to you. It's because of you. And I pray that when we walk away today, we would have a smaller, more humble view of ourselves and a more great and glorious and magnificent view of you. You do it all. The credit is yours and yours alone. We pray these things in your name, amen.